0: Good morning again. I invite you to take your Bibles and open to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. You didn't know that you were going to get a light show this morning as well, too, huh? One of those wonderful Sundays when, if it can maybe go wrong, it's starting to. So, But uh, uh, looking forward to jumping into word, uh, God's Word with you this morning. Uh, just one uh, thing to announce this morning, uh, so you can be aware coming up, uh, July is about five weeks away. And we're going to be doing something a little bit different for the month of July. Uh, All five Sundays in the month of July, we're going to have one morning service. One morning service. Uh, And the reason for that is to remind you and the people in the second service that our desire is, Lord willing, someday in the near future, hopefully, uh, that we could come back together all as one. Don't know what that looks like in the future, but we want to keep reminding ourselves that This two-service plan is just a stopgap measure. It's not uh, the end-all, be-all. In fact, we would love to work together to uh, have the ability to meet all together, whether that uh, what that looks like here for our building and such. But the month of July, we're going to be having one morning service, and of course, Sunday school as well. So we'll get you information on exactly what that's going to look like, but just to give you a heads-up on that. And it's going to be full, it's going to be a little chaotic, and it's going to be wonderful. It's going to be wonderful. I'm looking forward to that first Sunday in July when we do communion and everyone's going to be all together. And so just to put that on your radar, we'll have more information about that, but looking forward to that in July. If you've found your way to Mark chapter 9, it's on page 845 in the Pew Bible, page 845 in the Pew Bible. We're going to be looking at verses 30 through 50. So the end of chapter 9 here, uh, it's quite a chunk, but as we look at this and as we look at it all together, it's, uh, it has one major theme, and it all spurns from one conversation that Jesus has with his disciples. So before we read it and jump in, let's pray together. Father, thank you again for the opportunity to be here and to worship you. Lord, help us now as we come to your word to put aside distractions, whether that's a flickering light, whether that's something in our week to come, whether it's something from our week That's just happened. Lord, I pray that you would help calm our hearts and our minds as we look at your word. Help us to humbly submit ourselves to it and to know that it's from you. Lord, help us now. Give us understanding. Give us insight and use it to make us more like Jesus. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 50. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent for on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and he called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone would be first For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled with, uh, crippled with two hands than to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. I'm sure most of you know about the 1980 men's hockey team, right? The Miracle on Ice, uh, they called it. In the 1980 Winter Olympics in Lake Placid, New York, the United States men's hockey team, which comprised of mainly college players, uh, not professionals, from various universities and colleges around the country went up against the greatest hockey players from around the world, most notably the Soviet Union. You remember, this is the height of the Cold War, 1980. It was capitalism versus communism. It was, in a sense, good guys versus the bad guys, the underdogs, David versus Goliath. And the United States ended up pulling out the miraculous vi- victory. Al Michaels, the commentator with his famous line, do you believe in miracles? Yes, the miracle on ice. And then the men's team went off to defeat Finland in the gold medal match and ended up winning gold. Uh, that's the accurate historical event. Uh, a few years ago, a Disney put out a movie called Miracle, which is a somewhat fictionalized uh, account of that. And uh, it's, uh, it's a movie that, I've enjoyed, and one part of that movie is really interesting, and I don't know if this actually happened. A lot of things in these movies are added for dramatic effect, Uh, but it makes a good illustration uh, to open this message. As they were preparing to go to the Olympics, uh, the hard-nosed coach, Herb Brooks, from the University of Minnesota, was trying to get his boys into shape and get them into skating shape, and they had been uh, playing a, a warm-up match, and they were only concerned about themselves and how many goals they got. And the people who they were friends with, the rivalries from college have seeped in to the, uh, the U.S. men's team. And so he's trying to break that down. And the best way for him to do that is basically the equivalent of killers in hockey. It's the idea of down and back or touch every line. If you've ever played sports, it's like the worst form of conditioning. Um, and it would be awful, especially in hockey with the full pads and everything. And they were doing this in the movie, and they would take a break, and he would ask them, uh, who do you play for? And they would say their name, and they would say, so-and-so from Boston University, or so-and-so from the University of Minnesota, or uh, so-and-so from Boston College. And over and over again, he'd say, again, 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 until finally, one of the guys picked up on it, and he stopped them, and he called this guy out, and he said, what's your name? He said his name. He says, who do you play for? And he says, I play for the United States of America. And he blew the whistle, and he said, hit the showers. The illustration of that account is this, is that being on the team, they brought all kinds of different background and baggage with them. They came from different parts of the country. They came from different colleges and universities, and they had rivalries that existed, But as they came together to be on the United States men's hockey team, the point was is they weren't these individuals playing for these different schools. They were all Americans playing for the United States of America. As been said before, the name on the front of the jersey is a whole lot more important than the name on the back. You might think, how does this apply to our passage today? As we look here at this passage and we look at this interaction between Jesus and the disciples, the disciples are only worried about the name on the back of the jersey. Jesus confronts them with the question, What were you talking about along the road? And they didn't say anything because I think they were convicted of their own selfishness. They were arguing who was the greatest among them, who was the best, who was the most important. And Jesus calls them to the carpet. He says, I know what you were talking about. You were arguing amongst yourself who was the greatest, who was most important, who has the highest position of privilege. He says, that's not what it means to be a follower of Jesus. The name on the front of the jersey is a whole lot more important than the name on the back. The big idea this morning from this passage is this, is that being a disciple of Jesus is not about being the greatest but being the least. It's not about being the greatest, but rather being the least. It's not about being out in front, number one, hoorah, look at me, but rather, Lord, I'm following you. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. It's not about me. It's about you. So let's look together here. As Jesus continues to make this slow march to the cross, he starts with foretelling his death again. For rebuking his disciples and then continuing with some teaching about what it means to not be the greatest, but to be the least. Let's look here in verse 30 through 32. He says, they went from there and passed through Galilee and did not want anyone to know where he was teaching his disciples. Again, Jesus keeping his whereabouts and his identity in check so that the crowds and the mobs don't come to to take him and to uh, set him up as king. And he was teaching them what? It says in verse 31 that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Jesus again predicts his coming crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. And it says they did not understand, and they didn't ask, for they were afraid. So Jesus is setting the scene. He again tells them here about his death, burial, and resurrection, the coming humility of Jesus Christ, the humiliation of serving those, the suffering servant king. They were afraid to ask, so they didn't. But what was their discussion along the way? Verse 33 says, They came to Capernaum, which was kind of their home base, and when they entered in the house, uh, more than likely probably Peter's house again here, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? Verse 34, But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. This has happened often in my life as a youth pastor. A group of teens are standing there talking, and you walk up, and instantly things fall silent. What are you guys talking about? Quiet. Or you're in a church van. What are you guys talking about back there? Quiet. Maybe as parents, you have that, uh, that, uh, that question too, right? What are you guys talking about there in your room? Nothing. Nothing. For the first time, this actually happened. Eden and Ezra were playing and laughing and goofing around. And I walked in the room, and both of them just got quiet and looked at each other. What is going on? And they were laughing about something. But Jesus confronts his disciples, and he says, what, what's, what were you talking about? They don't, they don't say anything, and they were convicted, I think, already. It says, for they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Kind of the classic, my dad can beat up your dad conversation. Well, I'm more important. You could probably say Peter, James, and John were like, well, we got to go up the, we saw Jesus in all of his glory. We saw Moses and Elijah. Man, we are the most important. Maybe it's uh, some of the other disciples were arguing about who is the greatest. Jesus sees right through this, verse 35. And he sat down and he called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. If anyone would be first, if anyone wants the desire to be the greatest, They must become a servant, one in humility and self-forgetfulness. They must be last of all. Not only last, say, okay, everyone go before me, but they must be servant. They should seek to serve those. Jesus is saying this, not saying that this is what you need to do, but he's saying this as one who's going to be doing this. He is one who's going to be servant of all through the cross. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. Being a disciple of Jesus is not about being the greatest, but rather being last. And Jesus gives three illustrations here, or three uh, points of teaching that describe what it means to be the least or to be servant of all, to be last of all. So first off, if we would be great, we would be least, this is demonstrated or fleshed out by serving the least. Serving the least is our first point here. Verse 36, and he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. To reinforce this idea of serving the least of these, Jesus picks up a child. More than likely, uh, this is a relative of one of the disciples, somebody who would be in the house, who would be welcome. This child, and it's probably uh, a child around the age of eight or nine, uh, that age. So, Jesus picks them up and he sets them in the midst of them. This is the idea of in the circle. So, you can think of this Jesus is seated, whether around a table, and you have the other 12 disciples. You have 13 grown men. And Jesus picks up a child and sets like an eight year old in the midst of them. And one of these things is not like the other. <laughs> and here's this child seated here. And Jesus says, Whoever receives one such child in my name, so whoever serves, this child, or serves one like this, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me, receives the Father. The idea here is, is that by serving the least, you are serving Jesus. And by serving Jesus, you are serving the Father. A child would be considered least. In our culture, the, uh, the uh, presence of a child and the, the things uh, given attention to a child are much more than it was in the first century. Sometimes in the first century, a child was often seen as a nuisance. They were disregarded. They weren't really good for anything until they could work and earn a wage. Child Children were just uh, endured, you could say, until they were uh, profitable for something. <laughs> and so having a child seated in the circle would be a stark illustration. Much different than the, uh, the attention we give children today. And so Jesus saying, This is least, he is correct. A child is just there, basically. He doesn't have any standing. And Jesus says, No, if you serve the least like this child, you are serving me. If you want to be greatest, you must be least. And how do we do that? We serve the least, we serve those who are marginalized by our, our culture, by our community. And Jesus demonstrates that by speaking with children. He's going to do that again here uh, in in a few chapters. He does that by interacting with women and and interacting with them and and seeing how they uh, have a position in the kingdom. By those who are uh, are lame and deaf and mute, those who are cast out by society, Jesus interacts with them. He serves the least. He is an example. And if we want to be a disciple of Jesus, we must serve the least. The idea here is that our pride and our position, we need to be careful that we don't look down upon somebody and say, we're too good for you. We're too good for you. It's the idea of you don't know what somebody's been to until you walked a mile in their shoes. And that goes both ways. Somebody might look like they have it all together and they could just be crying on the inside, looking for help. And then there are those who might be looked down upon by society and you might turn your nose up and say, oh, don't talk to them or, or I don't want to be around them. And God has been at work in their life and, and they need to hear the gospel. They need some encouragement. Serving the least. One author says this, Jesus illustrates what it means to be a servant leader with a child, telling his disciples that to welcome a child is the same as welcoming him. And welcoming him is the same as welcoming God the Father. Children were not viewed as sweet or innocent or gentle in the ancient world, but as irrelevant and without social status. To welcome a child then is to show love and concern for even the least significant, refusing to show favoritism or prejudice towards others. To be a disciple of Jesus means to serve the least. Jesus continues on here, following a question from John, and we move from serving the least to sacrificing your own name. John says this in verse 38, Jesus said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. John has a total Karen moment here. I'm sorry if there's anyone named Karen here, but there is a a meme or a joke uh, that is prevalent in our culture, especially with those youngsters, you know, I'm not as young as I once was, but the idea of a Karen is somebody who always wants to talk to the manager, who you can't do that. Somebody who needs, who is a mom who feels the need to be everybody else's mom, but in a bad way, who always has to point out the rules and just kind of be a stick in the mud. John here says, but Jesus, we saw, we saw somebody out casting out demons in your name, but he wasn't part of us. We didn't know who he was, and so we tried to stop him. Excuse me, sir, you're not following Jesus. You need to stop that. John is concerned that this individual wasn't following them. I love, or not love that phrase, but you see where he says, because he was not following us. It's not saying he was not following Jesus or that he wasn't following the teaching of even John the Baptist, but not following us, meaning the disciples. John is worried that somebody else has the ability to serve the Lord and who doesn't follow necessarily like the disciples do. And he's upset. He's like, he's not following us. And Jesus says to him, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will soon be able afterward to speak evil of me. He says, Listen, if somebody's doing a mighty work in my name, they can't be an imposter. Because if the mighty work is being done, it's being done through the power of my name. And if somebody is trusting in my name, they're not your enemy, they're, they're not deceitful, they're, they're not. Wicked, if they're doing it in my name, they have to be a follower of me. He says, they won't be able to deny me. They won't be able to speak evil of me. Jesus says, if they are being able to do it in my name, let them do it. He says, for, verse 40, the one who is not against us is for us. You know, shades of the enemy of my enemy is my friend comes to my mind. It's not quite that. It's not quite that. It's this delineation, this two part of, okay, okay. You're either for us or you're against us. There are really only two categories of people in the world. Those who believe and follow in Jesus Christ and those who don't. That's it. You want to break people down into groups and identify with different things. Are you a believer or are you not? Are you in Christ or are you not? That's really what it boils down to. And Jesus says that. He says, if you're not against us, well, then you're for us. There's no middle ground. There's no wishy-washy of, well, I'm trying to decide. If you're trying to decide, then that means the answer is no. There's no waiting room in heaven. <laughs> There's no, just have a few more moments to see if you want to decide. You're either in or you're out. One of my phrases that one of my mentors always used to say, it's time to fish or cut bait, right? Yes or no. No in between. Jesus says, if they're not our enemy, then they're for us. And John, you need to realize that there are others who will believe and follow in me who won't, you won't know about and won't necessarily follow you, John. You need to sacrifice your name. And that's the second point here. As we think of following after Jesus, we sacrifice our own name. It's the illustration of a sports team that the name on the front is a whole lot more important than the name on the back. John was concerned that this individual wasn't part of their quote-unquote group. That he didn't have the opportunity to say, yes, you can do that. About their identity of being part of the disciples, this individual was one who was doing this mighty work in the name of Jesus. And Jesus says, great, great. While John was only focused on whether they were part of their group, their name. And Jesus says, no, It's not about you, John. It's not about you as the other disciples about being greatest. It's about me. It's not about your name. It's not about us, even, as a church. God has blessed us to be used by him. Since 1860-something, Horton Baptist Church has been a light for the gospel, has had members who have faithfully shared the gospel and invested in others. I'm so thankful for that history, but that doesn't mean God's always going to be using us. But that's okay, because it's not about us. It's not about Horton Baptist Church. It's about Jesus. It's about the gospel. It's why often I pray on Sunday mornings for other pastors and other ministries, because they're not our competitors. They're our coworkers. Even churches that aren't necessarily Baptist, right? Right? There's going to be non-Baptists in heaven. It's going to be awesome. Because it's going to be filled with people who believe in Jesus, who follow him, who believe in his death, burial, and resurrection. And that's important for us to see that God is doing amazing things through us and through all kinds of other people. And would we, with the minutia of theology, agree with everything and maybe how they do it? No. But are they faithfully preaching and teaching the gospel and being lights? Yes, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Not everyone looks like us or talks like us or does worship like us, and that's okay. There's wonderful diversity in the body of Christ, and we should rejoice whether God is at work here in Horton or Waverly or Charles City or down in Huxley or in the Des Moines area or across the world. It's not about us. It's not about our name. It's about his. We need to realize, like Jesus says, anyone who's not against us is for us. And he says this in verse 41, for truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. This emphasizes those who provide love and support for Jesus's lowly and persecuted disciples are working for the kingdom and they will be rewarded. Jesus says, if someone gives you a drink because you're a believer, you rejoice. You rejoice because they see the value of what you're doing. It's not about you. They are serving the greater kingdom of God. So we serve the least, we sacrifice our name, and then lastly, we pursue holiness. Jesus is continuing here in this discussion, and he still uses the child as an illustration. Verse 42, he says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. So I could imagine seeing Jesus sitting there with that child and say, whoever causes one of these little ones, like this child, to sin... It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. It would be better for somebody to be drowned than to cause a young child to be led to sin. Now, if that isn't a warning for you, you must be pretty dense, okay? Jesus is saying here, the value of this child, not that they're innocent in the sense that they have no sin, but they're innocent in the sense that, they are impressionable and young and willing to be taught and willing to listen and to follow. And he says, if you cause one of them to sin, it's better for you to have a giant millstone. And this millstone would be a large millstone, something that uh, an oxen or a couple of donkeys would pull to grind the grain, a heavy stone that would have been quarried, probably well over a thousand pounds, tied around your neck and thrown into the sea. If you've ever had just even a brick, I remember swimming class in high school and we'd throw a brick into the deep end and we'd swim down and we'd get the brick and we'd have to swim up with it. And if you would try to tread water with just a brick, you could last a few seconds and then, oh man, you would start to sink. And then you drop the brick and you go get it again. Now imagine a millstone weighing over a thousand pounds tied around your neck. Even the greatest water polo player in the world would not be able to hold that up. Jesus says it's better if you would be drowned in that manner than to lead a young one astray. Why? Because the seriousness of sin, a follower of Jesus is to pursue holiness. And so that means not leading others to sin and you yourself fighting sin. Jesus gives then this illustration, verse 43. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell. The unquenchable fire. Jesus here gives a picture of what hell is like. I think this is important for us. Hell is a very real place. And hell is awaiting those who are awaiting judgment. And look at some of these descriptors. Verse 44. Unquenchable fire. Fire that will not go out. It's a fire that consumes. Be thrown into hell and I cause sin. Uh, verse 48, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. This idea of worm is the idea of lowly uh, uh, degradation or something that is uh, decomposing. It's the idea that it's, just this, it's a place full of death and the fire is not quenched. Once again, unquenchable fire, something that will not stop. It's unending punishment. It's not a party. It's not a place where there's any sort of of refuge from punishment. It's unquenchable fire with ongoing death and destruction. And it's not once you're burned up, you're gone. No, it is a continual punishment for all of eternity. That is what this is set against. And Jesus says, if your hand's causing you to sin, cut it off. If your foot's causing you to sin, cut it off. If your eye is causing you to sin, pluck it out. He's using these extreme examples to demonstrate us, demonstrate for us the the seriousness of sin. Sin is not something to mess with. Sin, though it is pleasurable for a season, it says in Scripture, will find you out. Sin brings forth death, James 1 says. The ultimate end of all sin is death. Eternal death. Eternal punishment in in hell, in the lake of fire, unquenchable flame, forever. And Jesus says, if something's causing you to sin, get rid of it. These are these are drastic circumstances. These are these are amputations. This is a let's remove that so it's no longer an issue. Jesus is serious here. He says if you cause another one to sin, it's better that you would drown. And if something is causing you to sin in your life, get rid of it. Get rid of it. It might be drastic. Get rid of it. For the sacrifice of your hand or your foot or your eye, or whatever fleeting pleasure it might be in this world, is worth it for the escape from hell and the ability to be with Jesus forever. I always want to balance that, that salvation is just not a get out of a free card. Okay, you've trusted Christ, you're good to go. It's about we get to be with Jesus. We, who Jesus has saved us, we get to be with him. But there is definitely a point In salvation, where you need to understand that you are destined for eternal punishment, and without salvation, that's what you're going to endure. So I think we should be very thankful that through Jesus, we have escaped from that punishment. But it's not just that. It's the ability to be with him forever. But here, Jesus is emphasizing, listen, if you're a disciple of mine, if you want to be greatest, first you must be least, and you must Submit yourself and humble yourself and get rid of the sin in your life. Now, this is not saying you need to earn your salvation, but this is saying if you're one of my followers, you are going to fight sin. Paul says in Romans 6, kill it, mortify it, put it to death. You want to be rid of something, you kill it. You've ever had a varmint on your land? Something that keeps getting into your barn or into your house or into your feet or whatever it is. You might use a live trap, but you use a live trap so that you can be the one to put it out of its misery, right? Mouse traps. I want my mice dead. <laughs> None of this catch and release stuff. Sin is the same way. We don't catch and release sin. No, we kill sin. We exterminate it with God's help through the power of the spirit and the word of God. And Jesus says, if you're going to be a disciple of mine, if you're not going to be the greatest, but be the least and servant follow me, you will fight sin. For if you do not, sin will kill you. John Owen, the Puritan from the 1600s said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And that's so important for us. And it's a daily battle. I wish when you woke up in the morning, sin was somebody sitting on the end of your bed and you just had to beat them up once for the day. And that was it. That's not how it works. Our sin nature is within us. And so it's a daily battle of putting off that old man, of renewing our mind with the word of God through the spirit of God and putting on Christ's likeness of fighting sin. And it's the, it's the failure and then the getting off, off the mat and keep, keep going, keep fighting sin. It's, it's the other body of believers helping us fight sin in our lives. Jesus says, if you're gonna be my disciple, you're gonna pursue holiness. You're gonna put sin to death. And he says this, for everyone will be salted with fire. It's the idea here of being tested or purified with fire. The combination of salt and fire identifies purification. Through persecution and trials and temptation, believers offer themselves as living sacrifices before God. And then Jesus uses another illustration of salt here. He says, verse 50, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This illustration of salt uh, is used several times in Scripture. And salt is used in many different ways. It's a preservative, it's, it's, a, it's a flavoring agent, it's a purification, uh, it's a cleansing agent. And so, what Jesus is doing here says, He's saying salt is good. It, it's, it's got lots of different uses. And we as believers have lots of different uses for God. He wants us to be used by Him. But if we lose our saltiness, our worthwhileness by being overcome with sin, what good are we? A believer who claims to be a believer and is overcome with sin and is not willing to fight sin is worthless to God. Because the world looks at them and say, you're saying this, but you're living like this. It's one thing to humbly acknowledge your sin and fight against it and say, I fail, but God helped me to keep going. It's another thing to say, you know what? No, I like my sin. I'm not willing to deal with it. And I want to still say I'm a disciple. That's salt that's lost its saltiness. It's no good for anything. Jesus says, no, no, no. Have salt in yourselves. Be, Be useful to the cause of Christ. And he says, and be at peace with one another. Serve those around you. We see here by Jesus's demonstration of his forthcoming death, burial, and resurrection and this conversation about being greatest and being least. He says, if you want to be the greatest, you must become least. You need to serve the least. Sacrifice your name. It's not about you and pursue holiness. Fight sin in your lives and do not cause others to sin, but rather be worthwhile. Following Jesus means life is no longer about us. We seek our own self-promotion far too much. But Jesus says we must be last, not first. We must be least, not the greatest. May we serve the least, sacrifice our name and pursue holiness. Why? Because it's what Jesus has done. Jesus has done all these things for us. He served us the least. Why should we serve the least? Well, God has served us through the gospel, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We were his enemies, and he served us. He sacrificed Jesus, sacrificed his own name, Philippians 2. And through Christ, we can pursue holiness. He was without sin. As Christ is, so we are called to be through his power and through his strength. So may we do so as a body, as individuals, seek not to be the greatest, but to be the least through serving others, sacrificing our name, pursuing holiness. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you again for the, uh, your word and the challenge that it is to us. Lord, I'm so thankful for the forgiveness you give when we do fail. And Lord, give us a desire to follow after you, to serve others, to understand it's not about us. It's all about you and to fight sin in our lives. Lord, that you would work in us to be holy like Jesus Christ, because we want to be, because he has saved us. Lord, again, thank you for Christ and how he has accomplished all these things for us through the cross and how he calls us to them as his followers. Lord, we love you. Pray for all this in your son's name. Amen.